Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Josh Nygren. Today, we'll be talking with Andrew Baker, who is an assistant professor at Texas A&M Commerce. We'll be discussing his book, Bulldozer Revolutions, A Rural History of the Metropolitan South, which was published in 2018 by the University of Georgia Press's Environmental History in the American South series. Andrew Baker, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Andrew, I wonder if you'd uh, start off by sharing a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in history. Yeah, sure. So um, the reason I love history and the reason I got into it is really, uh, I think it gives us a great uh, large toolbox to tell stories. Uh, so what I always found fascinating about historians is the way they're able to to dabble in all sorts of different uh, source bases. So whether texts, whether looking at landscapes, uh, environmental science, uh, poetry, mm-hmm. cultural history, and the way they're able to bring all those together and tell a meaningful story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I tell my students, I, when, I, when I went to uh, sign up for my major as an undergrad, I crossed off all the ones I didn't want to do. <laughs> and then I said, which one's the broadest? Which one gives me enough room to kind of wander around and figure out what I'm doing? Yeah. And so history was what I chose. That's great. And so I think I think you see a lot of that. In, in my wandering research and the variety of sources I'm using. Uh, That's so definitely. a lot of what I do reading-wise is, is historical geography, environmental studies, um, and that side of it. That's definitely evident. Uh, you know, your, your interests definitely shine through uh, in this book, um, kind of drawing on multiple methods, multiple sources. Um, so I'm wondering, a lot of poetry in there, though. I think that's the big failure. Well, well, I, I, yeah, maybe not poetry, but you know, I, I think you uh, you cover enough ground that we can let that one slide, maybe. <laughs> um, so, I'm as a way to kind of uh, start talking about this book. Then, how did you become interested in the history of metropolitan growth in the rural South, uh, in particular? Yeah. So, uh, one of my professors, when I was working on my master's, told me that all history is autobiographical at some point. Uh, and I think that's true for this one. So I'm a suburban kid. I grew up uh, in a house that had a floodplain behind us that mm-hmm. I thought was, you know, a full wilderness, a wonderful place to, to go play in the woods and all that. And uh, kind of growing up, I never really appreciated why it was there, uh, what a floodplain was, um, how it went through this whole process of, of planning, why, why no one built houses on it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of uh, kind of growing up so in Loudoun County, um, getting a sense of, of what sprawl is and how it happened. And so in that sense, it is autobiographical. Um, but then as a PhD student working in a Southern history program and really interested in, in rural agricultural issues, so food production um, and kind of classic environmental damage, uh, how can we save the environment? How can we conserve farmland? Mm-hmm. Um, trying to connect those concerns with my upbringing. And then a lot of the Southern history questions. So I was in kind of classic uh, race, class, gender uh, program, also a lot of religion. So trying to connect these these questions about Southern history and, and race and history of slavery and legacies of these things to environmental concerns. Um, mm-hmm. And this is during a period where Southern environmental history was really kind of getting off the ground, but we hadn't really defined those questions. Um, And so uh, trying to to figure out the the overlap, I think, between those three things. Definitely. Yeah, this this book is uh, kind of a a shining testament to to just that sort of endeavor. Um, Now, you mentioned earlier that you were drawn to history as – 
kind of a discipline, a storytelling discipline. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really appreciated from this book was your ability to tell stories, to tell stories about individuals, tell stories about places. Um, and you start off with a really evocative and catchy uh, uh, story about Roy Harris. Could you tell us a little bit about him and how um, his experiences represent what you are hoping to capture with this book? Yeah, so a lot of the difficulty in, uh, in looking at a, a story that's really about a place, about two places, about two counties, is um, as historians, we're always telling stories fundamentally about people, right? There's no people in it. It's not history. Mm-hmm. And so I think the tension in trying to write the book is it's in some ways a biography of two places, um, but at the center of those biographies are always land use decisions, are always these cultural questions um, that a lot of what I was trying to capture is that the, the local people, the, the rural people are very much involved in each step of this process. That it's not, it's not urban imperialism, which is kind of the early drafts of the dissertation proposal were all about you know, imposition and the way cities crush and you know, ruin the landscape of the of the surrounding areas. And the more I read, the more I looked into these individuals, they don't seem to experience it that way, mm. uh, especially those who are connected to, to local power. They see this as a as an opportunity or as the the next mm. um, opportunity the same way cotton growing or um, cattle or any of these other land uses were economic opportunities. So Roy Harris, the way I kind of ran into him, there's a, a Sports Illustrated story. Uh, so he was a heavyweight boxer and Sports Illustrated in 1957 had a cover of him uh, without his shirt on with his, with his uh, hound dog and his <laughs> gun on his front porch. And it was kind of, this kind of little Abner stereotype. Mm-hmm. And he's from Cut and Shoot, Texas, which I had never heard of until I really dug into it. Great as, place name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the story for that is that some people just started shooting each other in the woods about, um, I think it's about religion, about this church service revival thing. And so, I mean, every stereotype you could want about the rural South is really packed into him. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I was sad I couldn't get the image in the book because Sports Illustrated won too much money. Oh. <laughs> but I, the link's in there. If you want to click on it. Very good. Um, and so Roy Harris as boxer. So he takes the money he gets from um, this heavyweight fight that he loses uh, and he invests it in, in land and ultimately becomes a, a developer, sells parts of his subdivision and then becomes county clerk, which is in a lot of ways the, the most important position for land use. Um, he's signing off on all these land sales mm-hmm. as he's encouraging the development of his county. And so I think the, the the juxtaposition of the image of the backwoods rural guy who then gets the college degree and plays the development game really well, but never really abandons the sense of him out back of his uh, shed lifting an engine block as his weightlifting return. <laughs> I think those kind of images, a lot of what the book's doing is is trying to reframe. And so when you when you draw a different frame. Uh, the things that you don't really see as being connected otherwise suddenly make a lot more sense mm-hmm. in interacting with each other. Yeah, I think yeah. I, your point about um, Harris seeing that as an opportunity kind of really sets up the reader for um, understanding and uh, how, how others look at these both as sometimes a threat, but also opportunities as uh, these cities grow in size. And you, you know, the book relies on a concept um, that you call a, a transient, uh, excuse me, a transient geographically ambiguous thing, and that is the metropolitan fringe. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what that is and uh, what are some of the core traits, uh, uh, some of its core traits in the three or four decades following World War II? Yeah, so this was probably the hardest question, really getting into it and trying to frame this book. Um, so when you read a lot of literature on suburban development, uh, it very much presents it. There's, there's kind of two schools. Mm-hmm. So there's the, 
suburbanization as this process that's it's, it's always happening and it's gradually a frontier that's spreading out. Um, and so when the car arrives and interstate highways sprawl, spreads out more. And so really sees this as a frontier. Mm. And then the other school is more the kind of architectural urban planning school that, that tends to look for ideal forms. Mm. Right? What is, what is the quintessential form of this type of development? Mm. And a lot of that leads you to these really strange uh, words that people keep inventing to try to describe what's going on. There's a couple sentences in the introduction where I just I list them all. Mm-hmm. Try to say none of this is really getting us towards people like Roy Harris. Right. So it's like pen urbia, wilder burbs, and rural fringes, and galactic cities, and <laughs> and they're all an attempt to try to explain what's going on. But it's almost like there's there's kind of two Venn diagrams that aren't touching. So you have, mm. you have rural agricultural history. And you talk to them and it's, it's almost as if cities don't exist or cities are a market, nothing mm-hmm. else. And then the, the suburban people very much see themselves as the, in, in conversation with the cities, the outer expansion of the city. And, and so a lot of what I tried to do is say, okay, let's, let's get past the term. Let's just slap the most general term we can on the metropolitan fringe. Mm-hmm. So we know it's connected to the city and the broader city. We know it's somehow on the edge of that and it's expanding. What I really ended up doing, and the more I, I wrote, the more I said, okay, this is really two counties. Mm. We're gonna, wh- when you look at the people who are involved and how they see where they live, in terms of the politics, in terms of just the, the local understanding of who they are, the county almost became the most effective unit to deal with this. Mm. Uh, and it made research a little more easy to have a place to go right to right there's some bounds <laughs> yeah uh, and so trying to find a way to frame it was really difficult and so for the metropolitan fringe in a lot of ways uh, what you're seeing there is is the ambiguity is part of why i just grabbed it as i need a word <laughs> and doing suburbia presents so many images in people's heads of right. white picket fences and nuclear families and Lots all of that with that word to, yeah, that wasn't really capturing what I was trying to get at. Uh, and so when I think about post-World War II development, all the way the chapters played out is once you pick the counties, so I said, okay, what are the counties that are really booming in the 1960s that 1930s, 40s, 50s are really starting to face some of this? And then by the 80s are suburbia in a lot of ways. And so let's let's set up the frame uh, I kind of cheated a little bit and picked two that were upstream from cities. <laughs> that made it more interesting. Uh, and I said, okay, what what's going on here that is important as I see it in the sources, as I see these characters like Roy Harris, what are they up to? What are they doing? And where are the, the key areas where I see them interact with the city? What shapes the counties? And if you just look at the maps, I mean, the most obvious thing in Montgomery County is a highway and a lake. Mm, yeah. And then the Woodlands, which is this uh, master planned community that's uh, known across the nation for its environmental uh, designing with nature. And you're referring to Montgomery County, Texas, which yes, is Montgomery County, Texas, outside yes. of uh, Houston. Outside of Houston. Uh, and then Loudoun County, the county I did in Virginia, it's, it's the airport. Um, and then it's a lot of this historical preservation and horse country stuff. The first thing when you look at it is you see all these historic districts uh, across the map. Mm. And so a lot of focusing on the space, you look at the land use and you look at the way um, the people who are shaping that land use, what they value, really sets up a lot of these stories. And, and for Loudoun County, Loudoun County, the, the, the metropolis that's growing here is the nation's capital. It's Washington, D.C., um, yeah, which a lot of people don't want to study D.C. because it's so strange, because uh, it can't annex any territory, because right. it's dependent on the federal government, uh, has congressional oversight. Uh, they don't even have a mayor up through the early 70s. They don't, they're not even really a city in some ways. Well, um, you, know, you know, one of the things that I, I think uh, any good pl- place-based history does is uh, it provides readers a a sense of kind of what the landscape of these places are like, what um, 
the culture's like, kind of how, what it feels like to be there. And I think you do a really good job in this book of doing that. And you do it twice in each of these, uh, these case studies outside of Houston, outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and so one of the ways that you explore how the metropolis begins to present challenges and opportunities for rural people is um, the ways in which uh, access to lands change. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that unfolded in Montgomery County outside of Houston. So as far as land use, you mean? Um, Yeah, in terms of land use and how that coincided with, you know, who has the ability to access uh, and use those lands. Sure, yeah. And in Montgomery County, Texas, one of the the early issues uh, in this story is about uh, a kind of strange, obscure thing, which is automobiles hitting cows. <laughs> and it's one of those moments where it's a story and you say, am I really going to spend time talking about this, all the things? <laughs> but they're, they're coming to blows. The, the editor of the newspaper is saying people are threatening his life <laughs> all about whether we're going to fence cattle or fence roads. Mm. Uh, and, in a lot of ways, this is about uh, the classic kind of 19th century uh, open range mm-hmm. way that those who don't have access to land uh, in terms of ownership are still able to access land with cattle, free ranging cattle, free ranging hogs. And when you read Southern history, uh, this is very much presented as a story about uh, after the Civil War is done, reconstruction, controlling uh, access of uh, former slaves to land. Uh, and then this battle to control the open range. So it's very strange for me to see this in the 1950s as right. a as a highway safety issue. Right. And also presented by a lot of people like kind of Roy Harris's as uh, this is this is the first step towards us encouraging access by the suburban development. Hmm. And so I think the fact that those two go so closely together was a very different story than I was used to seeing about suburban development. Uh, and so I, I, for this first chapter, I really seized on this idea of, okay, who has access? Um, and in some ways, the fact that I, as a suburban kid, could wander around the woods without worrying about getting shot at by hunters mm. or trespassing or any of this stuff was kind of the ultimate suburban privilege mm. and the suburban dream of, of living in nature. And so that chapter, uh, I tried to trace this question of kind of open range agricultural access and really quickly after um, the county passes these rules to say we need to pull cattle off the range you have to have your own uh, access to land on on your pasture you see them have this decades-long fight about poaching and hunting Mm -hmm. and who's gonna bring back the white-tailed deer that are then gonna provide the hunting lease money for land. And then by the time you're in the 1970s, suburban development's going on and you have a lot of these suburbanites wanting their dogs to roam free in the countryside. And this is causing all sorts of problems uh, environmentally, uh, but also interacting with the hunters and just getting into people's trash and all these kind Mm -hmm. of classic suburban issues. And so, like I said earlier, to, to draw the frame not around these three discrete issues, the open range and class, uh, hunting and restoring white deer populations, and then this question of suburban access to nature, I think in a lot of ways they're the same question of, of who gets to wander around in the woods mm-hmm. and who pays for that, whose land is it, and what rights of access do you have? And I, I think this is one of the ways you see this transition from a, a classic Southern story to a more metropolitan story um, through these kind of discrete moments. And the Woodlands as this strange development that, that hires people with experience uh, as game wardens effectively mm-hmm. and restoring game populations to restore game populations for suburbanites to look at. Mm-hmm because they have a, a vested interest in, in this as a natural community, uh, your contact with nature, your ability to look out your window and see specific animals, not to shoot them, uh, but that that's part of your property values and this suburban experience of nature. 
So I, I think there in a lot of places, there's a lot of continuity in, in the way land use plays out the questions, but the way they're answering them continues to, to shift. And the people who kind of are at the pivot of each of those, who tend to be the, the white landowners, mm-hmm. are very much uh, driving a lot of these changes. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, at one, at one point you write that, uh, you know, the county's wooded landscape went from inhabited to habitat, from managed to natural. And we're kind of in the eyes of um, uh, these newcomers, uh, these new suburbanites, and from production to recreation. I thought that was a really um, uh, evocative way of describing all these changes. Um, and now another another way that you demonstrate um, the metropolitan fringe undergoing changes was through agriculture itself. Both of these counties had uh, an agricultural presence before World War II. Um, but how, how did this process of agriculture changing uh, play out in similar and different ways? one outside of Washington, D.C., compared to Houston. And, um, you know, how does this amount to, as you described it, a project of rural gentrification? Yeah, so even in that last quote, uh, the idea of producing recreation, I think, is an interesting bridge to those two ideas. Mm -hmm. Agricultural production for commodity production is what both these counties are very much doing, um, 1930s, even on up to the 50s and 60s in some ways. Uh, so in Montgomery County, it's it's a classic cotton county um, that transitions more towards cattle and uh, pasture land, and then ultimately to recreational, so uh, kind of 4-H style horse equestrian mm-hmm. uh, vineyards, and this kind of rural tourism, rural gentrification, and so you see a lot of convergence here between these two areas. Uh, Loudoun County is one of the wealthiest rural counties in Virginia throughout the 19th century into the 20th century and is still to this day one of the wealthiest counties in the nation. And a lot of that's because of uh, this investment in dairy farms, which is kind of the the most technologically intense, capital intensive um, type of farming in these areas towards equestrian. Uh, there's even some um, Kentucky Derby winners that come out of the county. Mm. This is uh, very heavily invested uh, in, in high-class agriculture. And so I think you see for both these counties uh, a convergence around a, for lack, of better, for lack of a better term, metropolitan fringe agriculture that draws a lot of its money from, from prestige and recreation and tourism mm-hmm. as its ultimate way to present an image of, of rural life to people. And so both very much are agriculturally productive counties, but as land values go up, they're able to, to leverage that into this tourism. One of the, the, the things that stood out to me was, you know, um, you know, how 4-H becomes kind of a, a one of these examples of of, of status, right? Um, the the children aren't raising animals necessarily um, to bring to market, but to kind of instill values and to kind of. I think there's a quote at one point, uh, you know, to show that you've made it. Um, and then the 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 pick your own fruits and vegetable uh, 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 farms, you know, that that pop up outside of Washington D.C. where, um, you know. Basically, people are paying farmers to do the labor for them. It's a really strange thing once you think about it. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) One same thing with these extension agents. They have to adapt, too, because the county pays for a third of their salary. They're very much committed to uh, staying in the county, even as it develops. And so for them, it very much becomes a a youth program uh, and a way to promote have the kids being all right in mm-hmm. suburbia. Mm-hmm. Now, as you, as you mentioned before, um, you set off, in, uh, as you were describing earlier, when you started this project, uh, you were really interested in the relationship between 
the the metropole and the hinterlands, right? The city and the surrounding environs. Um, and that remains central to your study and for good reason. But you, as you indicated, you demonstrate that after World War II, power was never as one-sided as we might expect. And indeed, one aspect of your book I enjoyed most was your attention to uh, the importance of of local context and local contingency. Um, for me, the role of contingency was particularly uh, uh, evident in your discussion of urban water supply. So I'm wondering, could you explain how how did efforts to access new water supplies for these growing cities um, play out in these two counties, Loudoun County, Virginia, and Montgomery County, Texas? Yeah, so one of the ways uh, I talk about framing the book based on counties, I think the other way I thought about framing the book it is with kind of metropolitan fringes being three things at the same time. Mm. And as you can see in the, in the chapter organization, I kind of I pull out a thread and we'll talk about it. But I, I always want them to be overlapping. So the, mm-hmm. the fringes hinterland is one of those aspects that really comes through strongest in this chapter. I think we just talked about one, the, the countryside, this romanticized, idyllic, um, rural landscape mm-hmm. of green space and where everyone has access to to land and to nature and to productive agricultural labor, mm-hmm. this kind of vision. And then this fringe as, as rural, the, the kind of place of uh, of trailers and of, of limited law and no one can tell you what to do and you can let your dog run wild and all that. Mm-hmm. I think the interaction between those three and the expectations that go with each are really what the book is swirling around and trying to make sense of. So in this chapter on um, water development, I think a lot of the, the subtext is that, that the political structures matter um, mm-hmm. in ways that not just for the research and where the records are, but for who's shaping these decisions. So to kind of give a real brief story of each of these counties. Uh, so in Montgomery County, Texas, which is north of Houston, Houston as a city has major issues with uh, overdrawing on their groundwater. Mm-hmm. The, the city is, is actually sinking because they're drawing too much groundwater. Mm-hmm. And so during the 60s and 70s, uh, they're trying to secure access to water for the city for industrial use for the oil refineries and that, that whole ship channel industry, mm-hmm. but also for their residents. And so as they are looking for this, they're, they're having to work with these different river authorities that the state of Texas has created that are set up by watershed. Mm-hmm. And so the hinterland of Houston, when you look at a map, it crosses essentially four different watersheds, none of which they control or really have direct access to. Mm-hmm. And for Houston, the problem is flooding, as we all have seen more recently. Right. So they have a flood control district, but they don't have a water authority mm. that they oversee or are responsible for. And so a lot of the what drives that part of uh, the story is interaction between the city that has a great deal of money and population and demand, and then this kind of small, not very significant river authority, San Jacinto River Authority, which is... Uh, the board is largely staffed by rural landowners, by kind of your, your classic good old boys mm-hmm. of the county. And the way that they very much are negotiating about who's going uh, who's gonna to pay what, when, who's going to build uh, the dam. And ultimately, they build a lake, which becomes the keystone of the county's development as a recreational area and a major boon economically. And it's built largely with uh, Houston's money. And there's even accusations about uh, who owns land where. A lot of the board members own land alongside the lake. Right. <laughs> and so it's Houston developers that are building these lakefront developments for Houstonians in the county. And so the more I studied, the more the idea that somehow this is this is an imperial imposition, they're stealing the water. None of that really made sense of what was going on. Mm-hmm. The, the people who control the land seem to be very interested in this kind of development right. and selling it and very aggressively selling it to the city. Mm-hmm. So that's that Montgomery County story. The story in Loudoun is very much one of preservation and, and resistance to development by the Corps of Engineers of the Potomac River, uh, which is uh, a flood hazard for DC and also a uh, water source. Mm-hmm. And so 
largely through their congressional power. Uh, these um, classic white Southern 1960s congressmen, uh, 1950s, a Howard Smith, who's famously mm-hmm. the guy who uh, stonewalls the Civil Rights Act, mm-hmm. is also the guy who's uh, fighting off the Army Corps of Engineers for this county. Um, same thing with uh, Bird, Harry Bird. Mm-hmm. And so these these political structures that we so often look at as being ex- um, just horrible for civil rights in the South are also ones that are allowing this county to prevent the construction of a dam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and one of the things that um, jumped out to me with the Loudoun County uh, discussion that really hammered home this local contingency is how, you know, they start off trying to fight a power plant and um, then dam proposals. And ultimately they kind of uh, achieve a victory by, um, you know, having this interceptor pipe that will run sewage to a treatment facility far away. But then all that does is further uh, encourage suburban development. So it's kind of a development of a different sort. So it's it's a really fascinating story at the local level about um, kind of the classic story of unintended consequences. But um, it's uh, it shows that you know once you zoom in, things uh, don't always seem uh, as they aren't always as they appear from the kind of thirty thousand foot view. Yeah, it's it's weird to think that a suburban subsidy of the of a sewer line is really what drives development, not the highway or something else like that. Right, right. Uh, but in this case, the people in Burke, which is in Fairfax County, much closer in, because they didn't want the jet noise of an airport that mm-hmm. pushed the airport out. Because you have the airport upstream of the water intakes for the city, then you get see this bill for a sewer line and then because the politicians see need for development and that promotes their political careers they greatly expand the size of the pipe there all of a sudden you have suburban development right right and that's dulles airport yes Dulles airport um now uh uh after after discussing these water initiatives you uh you turn your attention to um really some of the, uh, for environmental historians, some of the stories that are um, we're familiar with, which are the environmental costs, especially costs borne uh, by, experienced by newcomers to suburban developments. Um, and these are issues that, you know, as you, as you discuss in the book, other historians have uh, identified as critical to the rise of post-war environmentalism. And yet in your cases, uh, you show that things played out a bit differently. You know, people are still uh, paying attention to these, uh, the damage wrought by suburban development, especially unplanned, unregulated suburban development. Um, And they speak in ways that espouse environmental values, but they act differently. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe start with uh, Montgomery County and how they responded to those environmental challenges? Yeah. So um, originally when I wrote the book, it was it was eight chapters. Mm-hmm. And so it was four for each on each of these subjects. Uh, but as I as I kind of whittled it down, as I focused on, okay, which, which stories here are really the most important? Uh, so there's, there's two chapters on, on agriculture and on water. Both became kind of side-by-side comparison chapters. Mm. But for these, these last two, this question of, of environmentalism in suburbia, of, of preservation, of, of flooding, and all these kind of classic suburban environmental stories, mm-hmm. the two counties went in such different directions mm. that I, I thought the best way to handle this was, was two fully just separate chapters to really dig into each of these questions. And so with the Montgomery County chapter, I was just struck and really maybe horrified too strong, <laughs> but just overwhelmed by the number and reading the county commissioner's minutes of just the number of, of homeowners who kept coming before this body saying, my house is flooding out, septic tanks don't work, the road's falling apart, this place is a mess, there are no services, and really, we're in a wilderness. 
some of them even explicitly use the language of right, there were Indians out here when I moved in, right. you know, drawing on these classic 1950s and 60s Texas assumptions about what that looked like. Mm-hmm. But when I when I really got into the language they were using, it was much more the language of of consumerism of I've been sold a faulty product, or um, the the regulators aren't really protecting my interests. And so the, well, these are so clearly environmental questions. What do you do with waste? Where are floodplains and why you shouldn't build on them? Questions of erosion. Mm-hmm. These questions were always side by side with, and the police don't show up when my neighbor shoots at my house, mm-hmm. or nobody's here to pick up the trash, or uh, any number of, kind of consumer service questions. And so... I, th- I think very much these are questions about the em- environmental impact of suburban development. But I think the larger uh, question is why was local government and state government so unprepared and, and unable to really manage these environmental impacts? Um, and or maybe put another way, why were developers able to get away with so much? Mm, yeah. Uh, and a lot of it, when you look into it, it's not that the county commissioners don't care or that they're somehow suspect and involved in this. A few probably were. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's they don't have the legal tools and the state government doesn't want to give them legal tools because the Farm Bureau and the, the landowning constituencies and the developer constituencies are both very much aligned to maximum development. Right. For, yeah. Um, and so I think the environmental frame, environmental label was really helpful in explaining each of these discrete issues. And I think Adam Rome's book does a great job of this, mm-hmm. looking at septic tanks. Mm-hmm. And and he even kind of at the end says of that chapter, this really isn't environmentalism. This is really consumerism. Mm-hmm. And consumerism can't really challenge fundamental problems of development. Mm-hmm. So a lot of ways that chapter is, is trying to reinforce that insight that he had mm-hmm. and to connect it to larger questions of kind of the rural South and uh, what regulation looks like in this sort of political climate. Uh, and it was nothing new that there were floodplains. It was nothing new right. that development happened without a lot of oversight. What's new is the level of, of development and the, the number of people walking in buying houses who didn't know the land, who didn't know the area, mm-hmm. who didn't know the, the environmental landscape. Mm-hmm. Now, there's even some lines uh, where the Army Corps of Engineers says, what you need to do is go out and ask a local to show you the lines on the trees, which show the flood lines, mm-hmm. so you know where to buy a house. And so there's this, even the Corps of Engineers that's supposed to be this paragon of, of high modern right. thinking is saying, go find rural local knowledge. Right, right. <laughs> So those are the development questions I kept running into. Um, yeah, and so uh, any follow-ups with that one? Yeah, yeah. Just I, I, I thought that you, um, you show that you know really they aren't. Um, those folks in Montgomery County, they're not so much concerned about, um, you know, joining a protest or elaborate or building on their personal experiences to become, you know, environmentalists in kind of our common post-war understanding, but they're, they really, they turn to government, right? They're trying to uh, reform local government and empower local government to have those powers to fix their problems. I thought that was a really good point. Yeah. And that we shouldn't assume that I'm, environmental problems lead to an environmentalist consciousness. Right, right. And so uh, that point, uh, it also plays out in Virginia. It's, um, you know, environmental activism. I'm not sure even if we could call it that. uh, In Virginia, in Loudoun County, uh, also unfolded in ways that didn't really uh, fit the model of environmentalism. So could you tell us how some of those preservation efforts that you mentioned before uh, continued and um, how they, in many ways, they combine environment and history, both as as amenities that they're seeking to protect uh, and to preserve. And they're often doing it in um, 
exclusive ways, socially elite ways. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so uh, kind of as we were talking about Montgomery County and in, in Loudoun, I kept running into a sense that in reading the literature on environmentalism and seeing what, it, what a real environmentalist movement looks like, that somehow these places were deficient or didn't measure up, right? It's, it's a book about environmentalism without environmentalism, almost. Mm. And, and so a lot of what I tried to do in writing these two chapters was to say, okay, what if, what if instead of we, we, starting, we start with an environmentalist ideal and then try to measure these things as how they, how they line up, to instead say, okay, how are they articulating what they're trying to do? Because if you look at what they're doing, I mean, in Loudoun County, there's an obsession with roadside litter and roadside trash and mm-hmm. uh, in Montgomery County with dumping and where people just throw their trash on the side of the road and how this is the worst thing for suburban development. Mm-hmm. Um, or issues like um, the Piedmont Environmental Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very much in Southern Loudoun County, this, this thing presents itself as a, a kind of blue-blooded uh, Virginian conservation organization mm-hmm. as much as it is an environmentalist organization. And so what I found to be the the core pivot for these Loudoun County uh, activists was really this idea of preservation Mm -hmm. and that the commitment is not environmental so much as it's aesthetic. Mm -hmm. It's about a a perception of of taste, uh, of refinement, of beauty, of culture, that's bound up in this particular image of the land that in some ways you could say draws on plantation images of boxwood gardens and mm-hmm. neoclassic architecture and all that. But also encompasses things like stone walls and fox hunting country and the images that go with mm-hmm. that, the images that we see a lot in uh, modern vineyards and the way they present the countryside. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of this was elite driven cultivation of taste on the land, you might say. And so this concept of preservation for Loudoun County, especially you see a little bit in Montgomery County uh, is historical preservation and environmental preservation are very much intertwined. Mm-hmm. And, and the justification for each is about the visual more than about the ecological. And so as a, as a public historian, in a lot of ways, it's my job now, seeing the preservation movement as an attempt to reconnect to this past, to have roots, really strikes me as, as an attempt to deal with suburban sprawl. Mm-hmm. That, that the subdivision where you, I uh, mean, the classic line about subdivisions is you, you cut down the trees and name the streets after them <laughs> that that whatever that process is is so clearly bulldozing history bulldozing nature and replacing it with a subdivision that the response to that on the ground is a a preservation of history and a preservation of landscape mm-hmm. and that that's what really anchors them now it's not that they don't use the language of environmentalism uh, some of them will talk about the moonrise image and Mm -hmm. the sense of pollution polluting the land but if you kind of take a little farther than that what they're saying about pollution it's more visual pollution Mm -hmm. than it is pcbs or any of this concern about pesticides and i think you see that most in like agriculture and agricultural preservation Uh, the idea of preserving chemical dependent monoculture as a form of environmental preservation is a strange one Mm -hmm. but when your real enemy is is sprawl, then open space preservation is a wide enough tent that you can include monoculture or uh, yeah monoculture under it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, it's all about landscape, right? It's the view of the landscape, which is uh, which is really driving their concerns. Um, and there's a classic line from uh, Tim Ingold where he says that landscapes are unwitting autobiography. And I think that's that's half true here. I think it's it's a cultivated autobiography. It's a memoir. Mm, yeah. In that sense, that they see their identity as tied up in the land. Yeah. So you. Um, so one of the things that um, that strikes me, as you, as you said before, 
in some ways you're challenging the existing understanding of the relationship between suburbanization and environmentalism after World War II. But in some ways you're really reinforcing it. In some ways you're, you're demonstrating just how uh, widely shared some of these um, environmental values were. And in fact, they're, so, they're gaining so much currency that people can deploy them in any manner of political or social or cultural projects. Um, I think it's, it's a really a job well done. Well, and preservation is a it's a really ambiguous thing, uh-huh. especially when you think about about class privilege, or you think about race and, and the way race plays into land use and who has access to land or who owns land. Uh, it's a lot more troubling, I think, than environmentalism often is. Mm. Right. It's, it's hard for preservation to be righteous in a way that some of these other movements can be. Mm. Uh, because they're so clearly class encoded and so clearly connected to to generational privilege, but I, I don't want to kind of cynically see through them mm-hmm. because I think what they are trying to protect and preserve is something of value. Mm-hmm. It's a it goes back to those questions we we're talking about in chapter one, right? So it's value for whom. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of their their arguments will say, well, anybody can see the beauty of it. From the road <laughs> but that's not the same thing as access right, right? And, and in the british experience which a lot of the loudon county people are looking to england as a model um, a lot of the fights in england are are about preserving the access of people to walk across land and walk mm-hmm. across the countryside and in a lot of the u.s context that's lost much earlier but they're maintaining this preservation culture that goes with it mm-hmm. Now, you, um, you've, you've touched upon the importance of equestrian culture in both of these places, and um, you, you, you wrap up the book with a really thought-provoking uh, reflection on, you know, what would our understandings of uh, the metropolitan fringe, of metropolitan expansion look like if the horse rather than the bulldozer became our dominant symbol of post-war development? Could you... Um, uh, briefly kind of uh, elaborate on that idea? Sure. Uh, so that's the gesture at the end that I hope I don't ever have to explain. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so the title of the book is, is Bulldozer Revolutions, which is drawing on a, a classic C. Van Woodward essay where he talks about the bulldozer revolution as the rise of the Sun Belt mm-hmm. and the way the South is changing. Um, and so a lot of my goal there was to say it's not just the suburban development bulldozer that rural people have been bulldozing their land for for generations that dam construction and reservoir construction is bulldozing agricultural change is all about bulldozing they're Mm -hmm. they're involved in timber management so they're bulldozing pine trees all over the place in montgomery county Uh, and then if you go back loudon county's history even before there was a bulldozer they were burning the trees down and making it so 90 percent of the county was agricultural land Mm -hmm. So the history of land use and reshaping land use and the idea of um, completely starting over in some ways, but never really being able to start over on the land was something I was trying to capture there in the mm-hmm. title, that rural people have been active. But the other half of that is the sense of, of the countryside, of what are they building? So once you've bulldozed a piece of property, what's the end? And a lot of what I kept seeing was this image of the countryside. So rural recreation, the farmette, which is this new thing to invent, the five-acre farm, Mm. which the farmers, uh, the classic line there is that it's, it's a, so it's too big to mow and too small to sow. (laughs) That it's, it's a tax shelter where you get agricultural exemption, Mm -hmm. but you're not really producing any commodities. You're producing a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so the horse stands in as an image for, for much of that dream, whether it's the 4-H kid or the, the equestrian blue bloods um, and privilege. But also, and a lot of the ambiguity I, I was left with there at the end, uh, I'm presenting these two villages. So you have the, the preserved, gentrified, historic landmark that is Waterford mm-hmm. and, in Virginia. And then you have uh, Tammany, which is a historically black uh, basically, uh, Freedman's Town from the 1880s and Sawmill Town, that's 
being threatened by development and probably going to be swallowed up by development, mm. that both of these have backyard horses. Right. And so you have relatively poor African-American community that still is presenting themselves in this rural recreation um, image, this countryside image. And so to me, that's one of the overarching uh, commonalities that I see is this commitment to a particular lifestyle, particular land use, particular values Mm -hmm. uh, that I don't want to poke too many holes in. Right. And as I try to explain where it came from and some of the issues with it. Right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Andrew, you've given us a lot of your time. Um, To conclude, I'm just wondering, you know, what's been uh, drawing your attention since the book came out last year? Yeah, so I'm working on two projects right now. Uh, One is um, kind of building on the same approach uh, I did for this project, which is looking for the, the global and the national and the local. So where I am now, we have a, a nearby Superfund remediation site for arsenic contamination. That in exploring this and all the records going with that really has connected me into the ways that cotton farmers are using arsenic that's a byproduct of copper smelting in the Mountain mm-hmm. West. Mm-hmm. And so kind of a comparative remediation story of these mm-hmm. areas like Butte, Montana, Tacoma, Washington, uh, parts of Arizona, and the way their byproduct is coming to the cotton south hmm. and creating super fun sites there also. Hmm. And so in some ways it's a commodity history of, of arsenic. And in some ways it's a, a public environmental history about remediation and memory. Sure. And the way we we connect or often don't connect cotton agriculture to these broader uh, economic changes. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things I'm working on. And then the other thing is a, a bit more experimental and interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a collaborative look at, at ruins. Uh, so ruin as a concept. Mm. Uh, this is something I came across a lot in my suburban research, but mm-hmm. the, the barn, decaying barn sure. behind the old subdivision or the... Um, gravel quarries so most of the paving for the subdivisions was done nearby but these are essentially huge open pit mines in the middle of suburbia with trees around them and fences so no one sees them so they're not part of the visual landscape but they're part of the legacies of suburban construction Hmm. so we're trying to to work with a photographer and some environmental scientists to pick a number of sites in the rural South and metropolitan South and look at these as public history sites. Cool. We can talk about these environmental uh, stories, environmental history and stories of development uh, in a way that, that forces us historians to get beyond the documents and really get into the landscape. Both, uh, both of those sound great. I hope to have you back uh, when they're complete. Andrew, I uh, want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that's a wrap uh, for this episode of New Books in Environmental History. Take care.